Welcome to episode 20 of Refined by Fire podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Tyler, and Refined by Fire, as always, is a Brothers in Battle Media production and is brought to you by our friends at Elkhart Brass. Look, it's the middle of December. You know you need to buy some gifts for your crew and you haven't done it, or your wife is bugging you for some ideas for some something to put in your stocking or under the tree. Elkhart Brass has you covered. You got to check out their Amazon store, the Elkhart Brass Amazon store. It's on Prime, so you can get this stuff shipped quickly. Who doesn't need an ugly sweater that says water always wins? Man, there's there's great stuff from, you know, just like sticker bundles and like I said, the ugly sweater, t-shirts, um, that really cool pennant and banner that they've got, but also, I mean, tools. They've got smooth bar tips, Coupling wrenches, uh, increasers, reducers, just kind of stuff, man, that, that you might want to have in your pocket, have in your bag on the rig. Just check it out if you're uh, if you're looking for a gift for your crew or someone needs to get you a gift. Again, the Elkhart Brass Amazon store. All right, my guest on episode 20 is Scott Hewlett. Scott is a firefighter in Ontario, Canada and the host of the Multiple Calls podcast. Multiple Calls is a great show, Uh, similar format to this, uh, but a a lot different in execution. And the thing about Scott's show is it has bar none, the best audio quality of any show out there. Uh, If you like the show, I I think you'll like Scott's show a lot too. Uh, Really digs in deep with his guests, has some really interesting folks on there. So we had a great conversation here. Uh, I really enjoyed talking with Scott. I was really glad that we got the opportunity to do it. You know, we cover... Uh, a lot of stuff like like what it means to him when he says that he wants to be an echo and an amplifier to the other voices in the fire service, uh, obstacles and successes of his time working in the training division on his job. Uh, he has these interesting ideas about the pressure on the veteran versus the pressure on the rookie, his time as an elite combat challenge competitor, uh, what he's doing currently for fitness, and uh some of the stuff he's learned throughout many years of uh, being involved in peer support, sort of that's usefulness and the lessons in his life. So it's a great talk and it just continues to get better and better and better as we go on. So it, it would really be a, a shame if like you missed the last 45 minutes, half hour of this show. So um, with no further interruption for me, here is my talk with Scott Hewlett. Today, our guest is Scott Hewlett. Scott, how are you? Great. Thanks. It's really cool to have you here. My first one-on-one guest, anyway, from Canada, and my first one-on-one guest who is also a podcast host. So this is uh, this is going to be really fun. I can put something on my resume now. <laughs> I'm honored, honestly. It's great. Oh, that's this is uh, definitely a treat for me. So so thanks for agreeing to do it. Well, I tend to to try to start somewhere in left field in order to maybe. Just get the conversation going a little bit. So we're gonna we're gonna hit on nutrition a little later. Get a, a little bit of foreshadowing and, and tell me what you had for breakfast this morning, Scott. I'm a pretty regular eater. Like 
my meals are pretty standard. I eat more for sustenance, I think, and fuel than I do for enjoyment. Maybe that's part laziness too, just because I know what I have to make and I don't have to think about it. Also, I try to, based, you know, based on my diet, I try to think of what are all the things I need to fit in in a day and then where can I fit them in, you know, and, and make it palatable too. So I try not to follow any strict program per se, but feel what works for me. Um, so yeah, so for breakfast every morning, um, I started on intermittent fasting actually. So I've been doing that for about a month. So I eat at 10 a.m. and I stop at 6 and like most things, I'm super flexible with it. So if I happen to be a little late or a little early, uh, that's fine too. Um, so I usually just have black coffee when I wake up as far as I know that's allowed. And so far it's working. So you're allowed black coffee or herbal tea and, uh, and water. So I do a black coffee because I have to have coffee when I wake up. I've given up so many things in my diet. I'm just... I have given up coffee for a couple of years at one point and I'm just not going to do that again. That I'm sounds sorry. horrible. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it was, I'm, I'm a self experimenter and I figured, you know, the only way you're going to know is if you try and you go long enough with it. But it was, uh, that one was a bad idea. So I usually have oatmeal for breakfast and again, just trying to fit the right things into it. So I'll throw peanut butter in it. I do like a frozen berry mix. I like to have one that's got cherries in it. That's, you know, I've also read that there's benefits for there, that too. So I try and like tweak if I'm going to pick something like safe frozen berries, like, well, what's the, what's the best variation that I can buy. Right. And then, uh, I put cocoa in it and cinnamon lately. I've been throwing in, uh, even all cook up pre-cooked some lentils and, and mix that in. I don't find it affects the flavor whatsoever. And I find, especially if I'm doing a workout, like I did this morning before I had my first meal at 10, that, that extra bulk and that extra protein hit, really helps. And then because I'm starting my morning at 10 o'clock, I've now sort of joined my breakfast and what would have been my first snack together. So then I'll do a protein shake, just straight up water in the protein mix and then a banana. So I eat that at 10 o'clock or around there. And then the great thing about intermittent fasting is, is that you seem to be eating all the time once you're in the window. Um, and my metabolism tends to run pretty high. So, uh, once you get past that last couple hours of where you're looking at the clock every five minutes, you're into it. Uh, you're pretty satisfied. And even by the end of the day, I kind of find that like, oof, I just feel like I ate and I'm kind of full and I got to get this next meal in. But again, like anything else, it's doing things long enough where your body adapts and eventually it becomes normal. And, and I've honestly, in one month, I've seen significant benefits from it. So I'm going to stick with it. It's working for me. What have been the benefits that you've seen from intermittent fasting? Um, I've never really seen anything where I've had more energy in the day. Uh, I've read a lot about people doing different things and saying they have more energy in a day. I guess this lines in with having coffee too. I don't tend to sleep the best overall. I do have good nights and bad nights, but overall I dream a lot and I tend to wake up in the middle of the night and my mind gets running and I have a hard time calming it down. So what the intermittent fasting definitely has done is I feel like even if I haven't slept great, uh, I have the energy to, to exercise and to work. And there's even been times where, and I haven't had this before, where the end of the day will come and I'll feel like I could do another workout if I wanted to right now. So that's one benefit. And then just physically, I mean, whether it's tied into me because I'm on this, you know, 10 to six window, if I'm, 
thinking more about eating and I'm eating cleaner, but I've leaned out and still making some, some gains physically. So those things together, uh, you know, that's one month in, I, I know that, you know, who knows what the long-term research or results are, but so far that's all I have to offer. What I wish I could do, what appeals to me so much is the idea of eating the same thing every day. Um, and not necessarily for every meal, but I've proposed this to my bride multiple times. Like I want to have the same breakfast every single day. The, the decision points, especially with five of us in my family, you know, so-and-so wants this and I want that. And the next person doesn't know what they want. And my wife eats, you know, maybe 25% of the time in the morning. I'm just like, can we just please have the same thing every morning? And she just can't wrap her mind around it, dude. So yeah, uh, my dinners are, my dinners are always a bit different especially at the hall uh but breakfast and lunch are usually pretty standard or if i end up having a different lunch i'll eat what my usual lunch is for dinner like i you know what i mean i'll just fit that in and i hear you about the kids um that's one benefit for me is that you know if they want different things in the morning at least i know what i'm making is the same and this goes to show just consistency with your kids and they they mirror you uh they've come to love what i eat in the morning so you know, they're getting most often, they're getting that very solid, healthy, filling meal to take them off to school. So I've been very pleased with that. Without pushing it on them, they're, they've, you know, gradually uh, worked their way towards it. So thank God I wasn't eating danishes every morning. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. They, they model that behavior. Uh, well, cool. So you, you said a word there. Uh, there was a little bit of like a, a hint, right? Um, you mentioned the hall, which is typically what, what you guys up north call your your firehouse, your fire station, um, which I think is I think it's a rad term. It's really cool. So tell me a little bit about uh, where you work, and then I'd like to just ask you maybe some of the differences that you have experienced or noticed between maybe Canadian and American fire service. Yeah, so I'm with Brampton Fire and Emergency Services. We're just outside of Toronto. Without traffic, you can go between the two probably in 15, 20 minutes, but normally it takes you a couple hours. We border um, Mississauga and the uh, the main airport, Toronto International, Pearson International Airport. Um, there's about 600,000 people. That's the population. We have 13 stations, uh, 18 trucks. I'm going to try and get all my numbers right here. You have 13 nope. stations for for a population of around 600K? Yeah. Are they most – and you said you have 18 apparatus total? Yep. Okay. How is the – sorry to interrupt. How's the staffing on each on each apparatus? Yeah, so this will tie into differences too. So okay. we have a number of two-truck halls and then some single-truck halls. Yeah. So the difference we call an engine a pumper. Okay. And a truck would be an aerial. Okay. And then we call rescues, they're called squads. So you could have a hall <laughs> or a station or firehouse that has one of those trucks in it. Uh, if it's a single truck hall, uh, that would have four people on it. And on a good day, you'd have five. It doesn't, rant, doesn't often occur, but you could. Okay. Um, at a two truck hall, the second truck will have at least three people on it if it hasn't been taken out of service for the day to upstaff other trucks and that are in need, uh, some days you'll have four on that too. So we could have eight, you know, at certain times of the year at our, at my hall, we've got two, we've got a pumper and, a, and an aerial. 
Um, you could have eight in or even nine sometimes, which, but that's, that's extremely rare. Yeah. Um, it's a pretty diverse city in population. There's about 65 different dialects. I believe that's spoken in Brampton. Um, a really good mix of industry and residential and commercial high rises. What else can I tell you about it? It's pretty flat and it's, uh, ma the major roads are a grid layout. So it's pretty good for emergency driving to get to the, the area you need to be in and then tie into the subdivision areas, which are obviously a bit um, more uh, intricate. And because we're close to Toronto and the airport, we've got a lot of uh, transportation trucks uh, driving through and carrying who knows what. Um, railroad as well. And then on the outside uh, borders on the north, uh, it's more rural, so you also have that opportunity to have those rural-type calls, uh, maybe without hydrants. And then as far as driving goes, you'd have you know some more high-speed accidents on smaller roads like that versus the high-speed accidents you may have on the highway. I think that's a pretty good picture of it. Most folks uh, can't paint a picture that clear of, of their job. That's pretty good. Uh, so, yeah, you, you talked about the hall. You talked about pumpers, aerials. Is there a difference... Uh, that you've noticed, and again, uh, you're looking in from the outside, uh, from Canada to America, much as I am from America to Canada, uh, but we have connections on both sides. I know you've been down here in the States for some training. Culturally, are there are there differences that you've noticed? We're sort of a jack-of-all-trades, master of none, maybe master of a couple, we don't have engine assignment, truck assignment. Um, whether it's a union-driven thing or not, we get moved around a lot, um, either moving to a different station to fill in a spot or on a shift change. We do now have designations as to what you're signed off on. So if you're not signed off on an aerial, then you won't be put on one, hopefully. Uh, but that gets kind of interesting too. Before that, you know, you would say you would get moved to a squad pumper hall, right? So auto X on the squad. And they wouldn't put you on the squad because, well, you're not an auto X guy. And, and, you know, they would put the guys at the station on that truck, which completely makes sense. But then a couple shifts from then you could be sent to the one truck hall that only has a squad and you're running on the back of that. And it's okay. So, <laughs> uh, it isn't always abided by. So that's one distinct difference, I think, especially tactic-wise. When we show up, you really have to know a bit of everything, which is really hard. And it's one thing I really appreciate now being this far into my career and learning more and more about how you guys in general run things. To, to try and be a master of one truck, which in and of itself has so many disciplines on it, uh, would be a complete blessing. It's almost like that, you know, same breakfast every morning. Uh, you know, the reason why Steve Jobs and Mark Zuckerberg were, were basically the same thing every day. It's like, let's just eliminate and minimize what our actual roles are here and, and then crush them, right? Like really know them inside and out. So it's definitely interesting up here because you have to stay on your toes and you're always sort of on the back foot trying to remember everything and, and stay on point. Um, but inevitably you can't, you can't possibly keep up with it all. So you really do depend on the people around you that 
are the experts in what you're doing. And hopefully you have those people that day. Uh, one things I'm noticing, one thing that I'm noticing now with my department is that over the last five years, we've become incredibly young. Now, that's not to say there's no experience there. I very often think that we shouldn't be treating recruits as clean slates, especially with what we expect them to come in with now. We expect this high, high level of training for them to even get in the door. And then we get in the door and we treat them like they don't know anything. I think that's really a, a paradox in my mind. I don't, and it's got to be confusing for them too. But we are drawing from another, another, a number of different backgrounds and people don't always necessarily have fire experience, even though they have, may have experience in other things. So there is something to be said about running, you know, more calls. So our trucks now are set up with a lot of new captains, a lot of acting captains, and on the back you could have less than a couple years experience. Um, and the trouble with the more senior firefighters is that as we're on longer, we get more time off. So you're not there as often. Um, so that was one thing I, I've brought forward to whenever I was teaching recruits is, you know, I don't envy the fact that you really have to be on point and you can't sit back and be in the, the person beside you's back pocket. Like I was when I first got on, you know, my first shift, uh, the guy had been on longer than I'd been alive. Uh, and that was up the majority of my crew and of the part, the department. So I had the luxury of just drafting in behind these people and really absorbing things from them. But our department as a whole doesn't have that benefit and it does create an opportunity for us all to step up and, and not get lazy and complacent, but it's definitely a challenge. Yeah, I can sympathize with that uh, completely because what you're talking about in the typical American model, especially in the, in the urban model of individuals having specific assignments to uh, an engine, a truck, a rescue, um, that is that is not really the way it works on my job in a small suburban department either, where we very much have to work, uh, have the ability to work on on every apparatus, and we have a lot of young firefighters, and we have a lot of acting uh, engineers or acting officers. So, very much can understand that um, both the positive and negative of that, right? Another experience I was able to have, which was a real blessing that brings a different perspective, is I was able to go on the firefighter exchange and work in New Zealand for a year. So, you know, literally as far away as you can get from where I'm living and see how they run things down there. And they do have some, you know, drastic differences between us and, and uh, different from you as well. But the one thing I'll, I'll say that I always brings a smile to, to me is uh, I could meet people in the department like, I'm, and I'm like, Oh, you're that guy back home. You're that guy back home. Like almost in the way that they look and their mannerisms, it's like you're meeting the same people. So like we have these archetypes. It, I, you know what? I wouldn't want to say it, but it's true. And yeah. <laughs> I think that's uh, that again, just like anything, there's positives and negatives to that, but it, it, it just lets you know that, we really are a fire service. Like you can really expand it, right? There's microcosms, but there is a universe and, and there are archetypes in it. And that just is what it is. And I'm sure that's maybe similar with other industries. I'm not sure, but that was a real funny thing that I was having happening in the background while I'm speaking to people. 
And then I'm, and then of course I'm looking around to find me there, right? That's what, that was I, my next question. <laughs> Did were you successful? No, not really. But but then then again, maybe that ties into being young and not really knowing who you are and not being able to see yourself from the outside and knowing your mannerisms. And maybe it would have been better to bring someone else, and then they could they could point the guy out and go, "There you are, right there." Sure. Right. How long ago was that? <laughs> when did you do that exchange program? Uh, two thousand five, two thousand six. So you have to be on what we call first class. Sorry, through your classifications, you have to be first class for a year. So I got on in ninety eight, and I went in two thousand five for a year. Does that program continue to exist? It, I believe it does. Uh, our department is sort of backed out of it. We had a number of people uh, participate. Um, two that I know of went before me and then myself and another firefighter went at the same time. Um, there's always some red tape. And I think as, as things get more and more corporate, um, you know, I've heard the comment of like, well, what benefit is really coming back from that? And, you know, and I can appreciate that. Think about the fact that how hard it is to even make a change within your own department in a small way, and then you're expecting to come back from the other side of the world and say, "Hey, they do this like in, they do this in New Zealand. We should do this. How, how's that going to go over?" So I get that. Um, even though you have to, you know, you bring back a report and 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 talk about it. Yes, maybe there is more benefit for the person individually, but I do think for the department as a whole, it broadened my perspective massively, right? And you may not see this instant payoff where a tactic comes back from there and it ends up being integrated, but you know, it, it yeah, it broadened my mind. And that pays off later on when you get involved as a senior firefighter and get into training, that is in there somewhere. And even if you're not bringing back something specific, your mind's opened up. So you see things differently and there's benefit to the department there. But you know, as things get bigger and bigger and more and more corporate, it's all about numbers and money. So those intangibles are the value isn't there for them. I think. Yeah. We talk about, right, this is a tangent. We'll see where this goes. Uh, <laughs> you hear the term data driven being thrown around a lot down here anyway, and, and both in the fire service in industry and even in, in the nonprofit world. Um, and I can appreciate that very much. And, and sometimes it's our best friend, but then other times uh, there is a place uh, for the qualitative. And, and I'm not sure how you could ever quantify that experience that you had there. Um, but it would be, it would be awful difficult to, uh, to look at something like that and say that it had no value to your career. And if it had value to your career, there must be some, some value to your department, right? Yeah, especially if you get into teaching or instructing or passing on information, however you want to label it. We all know what we mean when we say that. That that broadened perspective then gets gets offered to those people. Like you, you pay it forward in in ways that you can't describe. And we're going to get into it, but peer support's kind of like that too, right? Like you, if you want to talk data driven, this is confidential, and I can't give you. We do keep stats. We can talk about that, but. A lot of it is intangible. A lot of stuff happens and we have an influence in ways that aren't noticed. And I guess I could equate it to say fire prevention, right? Um, we have to have that broad perspective on the suppression of the things that we always think that because we're the largest group of people in every department that we somehow are the most important. And 
it's the most dramatic thing, right? At the tail end and the fires actually do happen. And this is what makes the news. But, you know, I will say time and time again, like fire prevention officers don't get the, the due that they're due for preventing, you know, an industry that's never had an issue or the cinema that's never had a fire. Like there's, you'll never be able to quantify the savings in lives and, and money by what hasn't happened. So that is part of our job and we're not a production model. Like we don't, and more and more, I think we're getting treated like we are one. Um, and there are some definite downsides and I, I don't think it's beneficial if we start being treated like a production model. There are just things that you inherently need to have in place. So when things do happen, um, they're there and you can keep weaning it back. Um, and roll the dice every day. And I've, it's not just our department. I'm not, you know, it's, it's, it's every department. I think for more and more people I talk about, you can roll the dice all you want, but eventually, you know, something bad could happen. And I, I hope it doesn't, but the, the possibility is, is there. Yeah. You touched on peer support. So now's a, as good a time as any to get into that. Um, seems to be a, a fairly like, large part of, of who you are as a firefighter. So, um, I guess talk to me a little bit about, about peer support, uh, what it is that you do, how you got involved and, and like what it means to you. Yeah. Our team got started in 1994. So I got on a 98. So it already been in existence four years before I joined and it was a real grassroots movement, which I give so much credit to at that time, 1994, I mean, to us, <laughs> Sounds like not too long ago and sounds like the modern world, but I guess to now, I guess we're getting recruits that are probably born around that time. Are we? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I guess my point in saying that is that in the peer support world and the fire service world and mentality and mental health, even more so than the general population, the perception of mental health uh, was drastically different. So what I mean by giving full credit and kudos to the, those crews to realize at that time in the society they're living in, in the, in the service they're living in to realize that they needed something, I think is huge. So there was a really bad NBC. These crews realized they needed something and they took it upon themselves to start it up, which, you know, see a problem, fix a problem, right? This is who we are. Um, so, I got a 98. Um, by that time, uh, Anita Coxican, who was a uh, communications operator, uh, she recently retired. Um, she was running the team, which again, major kudos to her. Uh, very often in suppression, you know, we don't really want to give anybody else heed that's outside of our division. We think we're the be all end all. Um, so there's obviously challenges with someone from another division stepping up to try and, and do anything, even if it's, uh, the right thing to do and, and it's going to benefit you. So for her to, you know, step up and to take that on and, and do what she did, uh, was phenomenal. Like she's an amazing person. I learned so much from her. So personally, I'd struggled with you know, whether you're realizing it or not, struggle with, you know, stuff like anxiety and depression and, 
and my own struggles. So I think that's very common too for people that are struggling and have a, then you're going to have a realization, right? That this exists, that it's real. And then on top of that, running calls and, and life challenges. So um, as I started to get a hold of that or even try to get a hold of it through learning about peer support, you know, that drove me into it. Um, so I joined the team in 2007 and then by 2009, uh, Anita decided that it would be great to have a co-lead. So I have two people running the team and we've continued that model ever since. So for a number of years, her and I were co-coordinating the team. And then when she retired, uh, Captain Manny Gould, who I did an episode with on the podcast, if you want to learn about her, um, amazing person. Uh, she's a great mentor too. Um, her and I co-lead the team, which works really well uh, to have it all on your plate, especially as you get to be a larger department and we're a team of uh, 24 now. So there's a number of people to manage. Uh, there's obviously a lot of calls to, to cover. Um, yeah, it's, that's a model that's worked really well for us. I'm a person that likes to sort of break things apart, not, not, not you know, actually walk into a system and smash it all to pieces, but in my mind, right, I want to break it all down into its components and then really be critical about it and what I think is beneficial and what's not. And then if I end up putting it back together and it's in the same format that I first found it, then, then great. And I think we should always do that with ourselves and with systems. And, and then you're always doing that, you know, that check-in to see if there's any updates that need to be done. So, you know, there are a few things that I that I saw that, you know, you pick up the torch and you carry it forward. That this is why you bring new blood into teams, because they bring new perspectives. And Anita was so amazing in her support of of allowing me to do that. So, um, yeah, we use uh, critical incident stress management, the SISM model as our main model, as our base training. But I've said a number of times and, you know, I'll say it again, too, that we don't we don't hold on to it like the be all end all. And we, we try not to speak to people or crews in a way that you have to stay within the confines of the system because it's the only way to work. So I'm a big proponent of learning about other systems like psychological first aid is another one. To, uh, and then safety function action. Like you can go on and on. There's a lot of models trying to all do the same thing. And I think if you, try to learn as much about all these different models and then you can pull from each of them what works and then you, you know, interject your own genuine, authentic uh, desire to help, your compassion, your experience, and then deal with people where they're at. I think that's when you're going to have the greatest benefit. That's when you're really going to help people. I think when, and people have a hard time when they think about peer support because they are worried about saying the wrong thing. And I think that fear then drives them to have a death grip on a system, right? Because that's what's going to make sure I don't screw up. Um, but I think there's there's actually more fault in that than just trusting that you're a person and trying to be more of just what you are and not thinking about what you're not. Um, so you don't need to be a psychologist or a counselor. You know, you're not going to spiral someone's life. Just show up and and be an ear and listen and offer what you can and, and be honest about what you, what you can't offer. And I think that's where you've got the most benefit. Yeah. One thing I'll, I'll offer that we, we created was uh, something called check-in calls. So in the peer support world, there's always been this um, binary thinking. Again, I like, I like to look at things that are binary and, and, and find where there's a middle ground. There's gotta be something else that we're missing. And there was always this binary thought of, 
do we make things like debriefings, which we end up calling post-incident discussions now because debriefing kind of sounds too clinical and and diffusing sounds like, you know, reminds you of bombs. It's just not that the wording is just not quite there, right? Speaking of SISM. But uh, this binary thinking of do we make these things automatic? Do we look at the call? Do we judge it? And then do we say you have to come in and do this talk? Or do you let people come to you so you never reach out to them? You just let them call you if they need you. So it's, it's and like either completely active or completely passive with nothing in between. Yeah, and I, it takes the humanity out of it um, and doesn't address that we're humans and we're dynamic and their situations are different and timing is different and time of day matters. Like everything matters. So you got to meet people where they're at. Um, so for me and our team, the middle ground was uh, something called check-in calls. So if we did call and connect, say an incident happens. And if you, you know, you would know as well as I do, if you phoned up a crew and said, Hey, I heard cap, I heard you had this rough call. How are you guys doing? And then they'll pull the phone away. And, hey guys, how are we doing? Yeah, I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. You know, we're good. Thanks a lot. Click. And part of that is true because you're not processing things for 24 to 72 hours. You've got a truck to put back together. There's work going on. It may be 1030 at night. Like if they don't want to do a talk that late, they just want to eat and get some, you know, a shower and have some clean clothes and maybe get a little bit of rest. So of course that's going to happen where we find people process things the most is once they're off shift, right? You're driving home and things are starting to stick with you and which is completely normal. So we started something called check-in calls. So within that 24 to 72 hour window, we will hear about the call obviously. And then we will, we'll do a check-in like we did. I just talked about, we'll call the crew and or text and, and see if they need anything right away. Um, and if the answer is no, then within that window, we'll, we'll contact each person on their personal cell phone. Um, there's different schools of thought on this. People could say, well, that's invasive. I'm off shift. You shouldn't bother me. We've had less than a handful of people say that. And those people have said, well, I want to be put on a list of people that don't want to be called. And my mentality is I'm not going to manage a list of people that don't want to be called in every situation. And you know, and potentially maybe you do need me down the road and you need, didn't even know and it didn't call. It's just messy. Yeah. Like for the benefit this is having, I'm not going to, I'm not going to manage something like that. We're, all you have to do is say, no, I'm yeah. good. Thanks. Thanks for Hit the red button. Right. If you don't want to talk. Yeah. So we're doing, we're doing like a hundred plus of these a year. And there have been times where each of us have had times where people have said, actually, I do have something on the go and it turns into a conversation. So I think it's it's really brought the humanity back into this and the fact that we're all caring about each other and thinking about each other. And um, in that time where maybe you're having a thought, then the phone rings or there's a text that comes in and, and then you realize that someone's there. So just the existence of that and we have seen the practical benefit of it. That for us has been this middle ground um, of, of finding out what works and what doesn't. It's just one instance. Yeah. Um, How do you... You mentioned a few times that um, it's been really beneficial. You've seen you've seen fruit that's that's come from this program. How do you attempt to quantify that, or attempt to at least um, put put some sort of specific value to the time, energy, uh, money potentially that's being put into a program like this? 
budget's always been an issue when you're dealing with trying to get money to, to run something. Um, we could have a whole podcast on that. Uh, that's always been a challenge. Um, recently our union has stepped up more than they ever have and, uh, are, are offering a, you know, a good amount of money for us to get, to get training for 24 people. If you think, even if you spent $500 on each person, which right, you're going to eat up yeah. money pretty quickly. It's pretty significant that's going to still. That's going to one course, right? Um, and we're a, we're a department team. So we have people that are not by design from each division. We have management, we have union. It's really diverse group and we serve the whole department. So there should obviously be budget, budget from admin and budget from the union. Um, as far as seeing, uh, benefit, um, Actually, you know, just let me speak a little bit more about that. Uh, in order to justify this in this data-driven society, we do keep statistics. I mentioned that. So the stats we keep would be the topic of discussion that we uh, talked about, uh, whether it was a one-on-one -on -one or a post-incident discussion or something, and then our names down the side, and then how many contacts we've had each, each year on those topics. So a couple things that lets me build a end-of-year report to upstairs and to the union and say, here's our stats, here's the main things we're talking about. So maybe that helps drive um, the main issues that our members are dealing with and how we want to train them and, and how we want to focus uh, what we do as a department. Um, and it also gives them that data driven of like how active we are, right? So we do that. I think the only way you're going to see the qualitative side is by staying in something for a long time. Um, and someone that's been on the department for a long time as that has seen a shift and really, really be paying attention to that shift. So we ran a campaign on the Facebook page we have, uh, for our peer support team called stigma loss stopped. Um, we went through a really hard time of maybe five, six, uh, funerals, losing people for various reasons some, uh, you know, chronic illnesses, uh, some sudden illness, um, loss to suicide. Um, so I think our department was forced, you know, because we were hit so many times in a, such a short period of time that all the walls were broken down. You could realize that how could we not all be affected by this? Like we're all, it really tore down those walls. And then I think during that time, our peer support team was doing good work. Um, and eventually we brought in that road to mental readiness course and taught everybody the eight hour program, which is now called the working mind. So there was just that, that timing of everything where we're all doing good work. We are all having to bond together to get through these horrible, horrible times of losing people that we cared so much about. And and you realize that people then start contacting us and saying, hey, this call happened. Can you check on these people? Hey, uh, this person's going through, might be going through something or they're going through this or this just happened. Can you get a hold of them? So our department's starting to run like what I've preached for a long time is our whole department should be the peer support team. I'm trying to trying to create something where we're, where we're not even needed. You know what I mean? Like we, we teach ourselves out of business. So if we can all run like that, as, as a family should, as dysfunctional as we can be at times, um, I think that's the goal. So what we ran the stigma loss stopped being the fact that, you know, regarding mental health and the stigma that that ties into it, I, 
there's you're never going to get rid of the isms, right? You never get rid of racism, sexism, ageism, stigma, mental health. You'll never eliminate it. But we can own the house, right? We can shift the mentality where those people that think that way are the minority. And they're always welcome to join us whenever they want. They're never excluded fully for where they what they used to think. So I think personally that our department tipped during that time we ran that stigma loss stop. So point being that I didn't ever want to sit at a funeral again and think that we lost that person due to the way we were. If it happened to be, you know, lost to suicide or, or the way we were treating the person. So it's a complex suicide, obviously is a very complex topic and, and, and the reason, and the reasons why it occurs. So, uh, for our small piece of the puzzle in that person's mind, I just wanted to make sure that it wasn't us and it was exterior things that we have no control over. So we ran that stigma loss stopped for people to send in the pictures of their crews with the hashtag. And, you know, we reached about 36,000 people. We had crews in the States, crews from across the country, people within our, our division. So for me, those are kind of the quantitative things that come from the qualitative um, and just a, yeah, just a general vibe and a feel and a shift in the conversations around the stations that I go to. And then obviously feedback from people as I travel around and they speak to me about, about it. I think that for me, there's obviously so much more work that needs to be done, but we are well ahead of the game when I think about departments that don't even have a team. Right. Yeah. There's still a lot out there. That sounds like really good work. Uh, thank you for doing it. Um, you know, even even here, several thousand miles away in this ever shrinking world, you know, things like a Facebook campaign, those, those can have an effect uh, that is very far reaching. So uh, I guess I just want to honor the work that you put into that and thank you for it. Thanks. Yeah. So it's a real pleasure to do it. So another another place uh, where I've, I've personally experienced this push pull of quantitative and qualitative and the importance of both. Um, but also understanding that, that, uh, while both are important, we can't exclude one or the other, um, is in the training division. Uh, I worked in the training division for a short time on my job, uh, just 18 months. Uh, you've, you've done it for, for longer than that. Uh, so I'd love to, to kind of rap about that a little bit and, and maybe, um, first, like just start with like, you said you got on in, in 98. So how did you end up? wanting to work in the training division at your job. Yeah, our paths are always really interesting and you gotta you gotta be careful what you you wish for sometimes. <laughs> and um I had come into the job with a uh I had taken my EMT basic actually in in St. Petersburg, Florida. I was down there for a while and took that course and took and then wrote the national exam. Um I started to try and get on when I was 19 and then uh, obviously quickly realized that I was lacking in everything and needed to do something. So I had applied to a few departments, had a few interviews, didn't get anywhere. One of my routes was to, to take this course um, and maybe just get on either paramedics or, you know, or fire. And I always had kind of had the desire to do both. Um, so then I came back and I was accepted to then do the paramedic program in uh, here in Canada and, uh, to certify here. Um, and then Brampton had called me and said, Hey, do you want, do you want a job? So I obviously took that right away and then went back to school 
full time uh, once I became first class to to get my ticket up here. So when I came into the job, I already had sort of that was something I could bring as that recruit that knows nothing about a lot. I knew something about something. And my more senior crew, because medical was just really starting to get going as a, a service that we provided uh, in our department, they really, and it was great. And, you know, again, I look back, I'm very grateful for that, that they allowed me to say, hey, you've got something here that you can bring to us. We value this. Can, you know, step forward and do the medicals if you can and bring us, you know, stand up and do some training for us. So they really gave me that balance of, you don't know anything and you need to listen <laughs> and you know something and we'll listen. So I, I'm really, really grateful for that experience because of that. Uh, I got into becoming a, a medical instructor in my department and because I had been able to do good work on, on calls and within my own crew, then obviously that translated into people being able to be more open to listening to what I had to offer there. And I had a great mentor in Dana Bradshaw who was running the, as a medical training officer at the time. Fast forward uh, after teaching, you know, as an EMR instructor for a long time, uh, Dana was eventually going to retire. And I didn't really have any um, desire to write for captain at the time. Um, I saw this as an opportunity to really get in and um, have some control and make some positive change and have, have more of a say. So I, you know, interestingly enough for to become a training officer, you have to put an application into the city, you know, put on your suit and go to an interview. And they really look at who you are and what you have to bring. Um, for some reason, we don't have to do that with captains, which is the most important job in our, in our service, write a test, get the job. That's a whole other conversation, but I had to go through that, right? I had to like, you know, dig out the resume and update it and think about who I was and what I wanted to do. And, you know, luckily enough, I, I got the gig and, and got in there and um, was quickly overwhelmed. Ah, yes, uh, yes. As many many uh, training divisions are, you're understaffed and overwhelmed very quickly. Um, there were some leadership issues in there too, um, or I guess I should call them management issues. There was very much a sense of uh, do the job I we hired you to do. There wasn't a lot of onboarding and not a lot of mentoring. Um, from the leadership standpoint, Dana himself was amazing. Like again, back pocket guy that's no, knows what he's doing. Incredibly knowledgeable. It's like, whatever, like just feed me. Like even, even once he retired, he's on the phone, I'm on the phone with him all the time saying, what about this? What about this? What about this? Without him, you know, I probably wouldn't have, have survived it, but they were bringing in some other new people that, that were new to our department. And you know, that same mentality of do the job I hired you to do and not onboarding them. I really saw the effect on them. Like if I was reeling, here's people that are brand new and have no idea. And they're just expected to hit the ground running. Um, but despite those leadership issues, uh, we did have an incredible group of training officers. Um, we complemented each other's strengths. Um, and, and it's really worked as a team and we had high respect for each other. And we had this mutual vision of providing training that aligned with, you know, real world action on calls. And how do we do that? How do we bring training that's going to end up in the hands and the minds of people on the call? So it's not just doing it because it's a tick box for me that that was the why. And for them, that was the why too. So 
we aligned in that way and the high respect we had for each other, we really did a lot of a great work. And we really wanted to create this coming from the floor. Um, you know, I knew there wasn't a great relationship between training and the floor. So I wanted to be that bridge and that, you know, sort of informal leader within the group of new people that came in to be that bridge for them too to the floor uh, to build a solid relationship with between training and the crews where they were getting legitimately getting what they needed. And then on, on, the, on the flip side of the coin is holding them accountable for once we eliminate all the barriers and excuses that they had to hold up their part too. Right. I think that was a, a, a thing that I definitely brought forward that I'm going to hear. I'm honestly going to hear you and I'm going to solve all these problems that you say that there are. And then it it's on you and us, right, to to live up to what we actually said what we would do if those barriers are gone. Um, that was a real wake up call, I think. Right. Um, yeah, it's interesting that you I, use the term bridge. This is very much how I how I felt during my time in training is your perspective is broadening uh, as you're seeing, you know, the entire department, as you're spending more time with administrative folks. Um, you know, so to try to, in some way, communicate that broadened perspective to the crews and help them to understand maybe why training is the way it is sometimes. And then in addition, it's very reciprocal. There was a lot also going from the floor up to admin of uh, trying to help to understand uh, some of these very legitimate frustrations and um, some of these very legitimate needs that sometimes are not being met. Yeah, it was definitely a challenge to, you can't always work on your passion project. Yeah. So you're throwing a lot of things that you aren't good at. And again, getting back to that, do the job we hired you to do, to give you an example, um, you know, we bowl a hit and I, I was given two weeks to get our department prepared for that. <laughs> you know, during the time when people are trying to get all the same equipment you're trying to get. So that was a real growth experience, um, but successful in the end. And, you know, and nice that they, I was trusted to do it. I like that you use the term growth experience. And uh, that's such a great example, having two weeks to fight for resources and, and build a program. That's what I miss the most being out of training is, is, that time compression, it's the best and the worst thing. Or for me, it was the best and the worst thing about the job was that there was never enough time. And, and right. I, that's when I work the best is when it, something absolutely must be done. And there's, there's just no, uh, there's just no compromise on the timeline. Uh, but it's also uh, the greatest frustration because you can, a lot of things will end up slipping through the cracks or you end up, uh, I, let me ask you, I felt like I ended up putting out a lot of like B plus to B minus projects that they, they met spec and they were ready to ship, but it wasn't, it wasn't an A plus. Uh, what's your experience on that? Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, I think we need to be careful too uh, on a training officer end and on a crew side that very often we can say this isn't perfect. So it shouldn't be brought forward. 
there are things that can be brought forward at 85% and then grown from there and improve as they play it in the real world. So I think I had to release a little bit of that perfectionism uh, to get work done and realize that it didn't have to end with the release and rollout. We have had incidents, incidents where things were rolled out when they absolutely needed to be perfect and they were rolled out improperly and there were, there was consequences because of that. So that does exist to tie in with the other example. Actually, I was going to give was I was tasked with doing an elevator and escalator rescue program. I had minimal experience with that. Um, I wasn't able to go and take a course before I built it. It was like, build it. Here's a timeline, get it done. And you're laughing. Because- <laughs> I'm laughing. I don't want to interrupt your story, man, but I'm laughing. My first assignment in training was was to deliver elevator training. I had the same experience, man. Right. So, you know, again, tying into, I really wanted this to be effective. Like, I have a hard time working on something and just putting it out because I was supposed to do it, and it's, and I think it's not going to reach the hands and minds of crews. Cause I knew, I knew I hated that. Like I want to learn something that when I try it and I do it, it works or I can build off of it. It's a springboard, something, give me something. Stop tick boxing me. Right. So I didn't want to do that when I was in there. So I did my best, but I, again, that's that crunch of like, do we, you know, get it done. So I had to research and, and ask crews for feedback and, learn how to put together a program and then put the presentation together. So I think this really also speaks to how you need to really be confident in what you do know and bring that a hundred percent and then just be honest about what you don't just tell the story. Like you don't have to give all the, you know, the behind the curtain dirty details and air your dirty laundry of your, your struggles, but you can step up and say, I was tasked with this. Uh, This is completely new to me. I wasn't given the opportunity to take a course. Here's where I'm at. We're in this together. This is what I have for you. You know, I'm willing to change, you know, a number of things, but obviously we can't change everything for everybody. Where is this sweet spot where this is something that you can take and go, okay, we accept it. And it's, it's something and we can build off of it and use most of it. So I think that was my experience uh, with that whole idea of putting something out that's not necessarily because I'm not I'm not going to deliver an A plus program on something I just literally learned about. Yeah. It's impossible. It's impossible. Right. How is that possible? It's too much. It's too high of an expectation from uh, a, a management perspective and it's too high of an expectation from the floor. So. And you just have to be honest up and down yeah. about that. If you expect yourself to deliver that A plus on that. uh on that topic that you weren't previously well versed in, that's where you see some instructors, and I think it's getting better. Uh, but that's where you see some instructors uh, really fail because they they pretend that they're the expert. Oh, it's the worst, right? We've all seen it. Uh, I do think it's getting better. I think we're beginning to foster, uh, at least in my area, and, and and what I see is we're getting to to foster a little bit of uh, an environment where it's okay to not know everything as long as you're real about it. With the, 
additional things that I was asked to do eventually when Dana left. Um, and then I was also given the opportunity to then step in as a live fire instructor, which, you know, became a real passion uh, project there. Uh, I was given the opportunity to go to FDIC very early on to being in the division. Um, I was also given the opportunity to go to Nozzle Forward. Both of those experiences were career changing and life affecting. Uh, they, I was able to take things from both of those and actually see results and put together um, projects and make them a real thing in, our, in my department with a lot of help from others. So I, being a training officer really forced me to up my game. Uh, it really highlighted the things I didn't know. The very first, first recruit class I taught got a okay version of me and the way I teach. And then by the fifth one, I really started to dial in. So unfortunately, you know, the first group doesn't get the A plus and, and maybe the fifth group got a B or a B plus, who knows, maybe a couple moments of A's. The only, but again, my honesty, I think that's what, that's what comes through. I had to be honest about where I was at and what I was given and what I could offer and work with people and, and not in just a, um, a false humility way, but honestly sharing, here's all the things I screwed up on. <laughs> here's all my mistakes and where I've failed. Um, try and not make the same mistake. Here's what puts it in perspective as, as why I made the mistake. Here's some successes I've had. Here's some luck that I've had. Like give them, just get, just give them the full picture of who you are. And I think more of these conversations, just like you and I are having, and we're having with people on our, on our episodes is skills are skills, man. Like, right. The job is the job. Doing a defib protocol is, is pretty cut and dry right? It's, it's the qualitative stuff. It's the subjective stuff. It's the conversations and the relationships and the personalities and the dynamics of that, that that's where the meat and potatoes is like, that's where it really matters. So I think when you can instill that in the people you're talking and you, you know, you have, you have these people in front of you and, and in a recruit class, I had them for days on end for 16 weeks our program was 16 weeks long you have so much opportunity to interject more than what you're teaching. Right. And, and not in a, I know all these things and I'm incredibly wise. It's from a, I want to open your mind. I want to give you perspective. I want to have you asking the same critical questions that I'm asking about things. It's the mindset and the, and the approach that I found helpful in my life. So it's not about what I know. It's about maybe what, how I've learned from other people, how to approach things. And if you can pass that on and then light that fire in them, man, like they're just going to, that's what Jeff Clayton was saying. When, you know, when I talked to him, you can teach people passion. You wouldn't teach them anything else. Yeah, that's right. Like they're going to go and find, they're going to go find all this on their own. Yeah. Well, they don't need you to teach them everything skill wise. They need you to teach them concepts and views and perspectives and passion. And once they see that people, people gravitate to that, right? They just, they take off. And that's when you see, that's when you see audiences or groups light up, right? That's what resonates. And that's when they walk away thinking that was an amazing class or that was an amazing recruit program. Like that's what they leave with. Not the fact that you told them to use a certain tool in a certain way. That's right. Because you inspired their passion. Has that been the most positive 
uh, take away from your experience in training is the ability to sort of inspire passion or, or help uh, model a mindset? Yeah, 100%. And I think that then leads into the podcast, right? Um, and is wanting to continue that and seeing that you have great people around you and realizing that their stories are so powerful and important and really taking the time to listen matters. And that's when people seek out the stuff. That's what they model. Um, and if you can create that modeling and, and then maybe they're possibly even going to do it 10 times better than you did it. It's pretty, it's just, it's just awesome. It's, it's like, I can't even, I have, I have a hard time putting it into words, the satisfaction that comes from seeing people be 20 years ahead of you. <laughs> it's just, it's phenomenal. And you almost get to relive how you would wish you had done things through them. Yeah. Feeling like you've had any part of accelerating someone's timeline right? What, what maybe used to take 15 years, especially in a job like mine, man, we don't, we don't go to fires all the time. You know, what, what took a decade before, if we can accelerate that timeline, that is the goal. That is what we're trying to do. Yeah. So as a training officer and then with the podcast, I mean, I've said before too, and I'm, I'm sure you agree that I just, I feel like not everyone has to be that, you know, boundary groundbreaking person that's got this brand new thing that's you know you're going to put your name to and you're going to change the world some of us are just really good at telling stories and helping other people tell their stories and we're echoes and we're amplifiers and I really see that is what I see myself as I'm an echo and an amplifier so I have a really strong skill I think in finding information that I know is valuable and will fit and will resonate and then putting it together and delivering it in a way where it's non-confrontational and people feel that authenticity and that it resonates and then it, it fuels them. I feel like I can say that confidently. I, I think we need to celebrate the things we're good at as much as we're, there's many things we're not. I think I can say that about what I do and definitely what about, about what you do. Well, thanks, man. That's really kind of you to say. Uh, I really appreciate the way that you have codified that, the echo and the amplifier. I had thought of it in, in maybe some different ways, but it is interesting. I, I do feel like what we do through our, our individual podcasts is, is pretty similar, although the methods and the presentation ends up being you know quite different. I think the heart of it is the same and, and the echo and the amplifier, those are two very different things. I feel like you just put, put words right in my mouth to exactly what, what I have found myself doing. Um, it is apparently who I am, right? Like I'm, I'm just not the guy. I'm never going to have the experience or the intellect or the ability to create something like nozzle forward. That's not my job. That is not who I am, but to echo what I've learned from Aaron to amplify among, you know, my small sphere of influence, um, what I've learned from, from others or even been able to fit together. That's, uh, that's incredibly helpful as well. And it's a real, like, I don't think we can put a value hierarchy on this where we see 
ourselves as lesser than or you know we hold these groundbreakers and change makers as the highest level and then place ourselves somewhere below that i think it's necessary to have things echoed and amplified it's a synergistic effect if one person says something and it never reaches anybody else or only reaches the people that they have direct contact with then there's a limited uh reach so I think we need to celebrate the the value that being this, as well as the other roles that come into play, um, what that is, right? Um, again, celebrate who you are, and, and you know we don't need to minimize it by thinking about what we're not. I I talked about that right from when I talked about uh, the medical stuff, right? People will always think, well, I'm not a paramedic, well, I'm not a doctor. It's like, no, but you do have skills. You have a job, you have a role, you have, you know, the people that are the best survivors of VSAs are people that have received bystander CPR. So, you know, if that person that's, that's standing with that, that person that has a cardiac arrest says, well, I'm not a firefighter, so I'm not going to do CPR. You've already decided, in most cases, you've, you've decided the outcome of this. So... Our fo- as much as we should be looking above and ahead to what we could be, right? That's what keeps you learning and wanting to move forward. You really need to celebrate what you are in the moment. Like fourth-class firefighters, just be a kick-ass fourth-class firefighter, right? Don't always be thinking about what you're not. And and that's when you'll thrive. That's when you'll get the most out of that that time that you're in is when you really, uh, really be present in what you are and accept it and it's only going to happen once. You're going to be recruit in, unless you change departments, you go to multiple, you know what I mean? You're only going to be recruiting in that program once. So absorb it, like enjoy it, like let it be the most it can be. And then that's what will build on you eventually you being something more. So there is a value in, in, in every realm and training, uh, and we can get into the podcast if you want, but training sort of led to that as well. So through the, through being this way that I decided to approach this role as a training officer, taking what other people did and how they approached it and then interjecting who I was into it too and, and where I could fit myself into this. You know, I, I distinctly remember having a, a recruit come up to me and said, hey, you should do a podcast. I would listen to wow. it. And my first thought was, that's super kind of you. Like, I really appreciate that. Um, you know, it, it warms my heart and you know, makes me feel great. And, you know, your ego goes, ego goes off like an airbag, like, wow, I, you know, that's, that's a <laughs> big thing for you to say. And, and, and you try to, you know, accept the compliment and not minimize it. And, but it was just sort of, you know, it, it landed and I, I accepted it and it sort of sat in the back of my mind and there it was. Um, and then again, the universe just sort of aligns and between moving from a distance of like having a commute of seven minutes to having a commute of an hour and 15 minutes, I wanted to fill my time with something other than music. Uh, I tend when I'm listening to music, my mind will just wander. Whereas I needed to, during a time of stress, I need to be more focused. If I'm listening to something I'm learning about, then it focuses my mind and I find I end up arriving at work a little calmer, right? Um, it focuses me. So, you know, I found great podcasts uh, that really resonated with me. And then of course, being in the service, I'm like, I wonder what firefighting podcasts are out there. So then I find, you know, I have to give, and I know necessarily you don't want to uh, accept it, but I, I found your podcast. And honestly, like hearing the way you did things, I think we align 
in a, on a lot of levels, the way you approached it, the way that you want to tell stories, you want to help be that echo and amplifier for other people. And it doesn't need to be confrontational or about this is better than that. It's about just people talking. And, you know, we were sort of, you were sort of early on too, right? There was a number of episodes. It wasn't so uh, like listening to Rogan and going, oh, he's got 2000 podcasts. How am I, what, what right do I have to jump into this pool? Right. right. He's already mastered it. Uh, and even with James Gearing and behind the shield, he was at, you know, 80 or a hundred at that point, or I don't know where it was, but it's like, well, you can very easily talk yourself into the mindset. Well, other people are already doing this. It's already being done. Yeah. There's no benefit from you doing okay. this. It was a nice idea, but it's already being done and it's being done well. Right. But it was interesting for you to, you to say, well, we're doing the same thing, but in slightly different ways. And I, that was a conscious effort on my part. Whereas I wanted to find out where I fit as who I am in this world of the podcast. What can I build in my way? Um, and how can I bring these stories to light and do them justice in a genuine and authentic way in my way for people. And then that allowed me to take the step too, because I wasn't really putting myself and all my opinions and saying, I write about a, B and C out there. It, w it wasn't about that. It was about just making things available, just like in training. I'm going to build this, and if you want to come to it, you can. You don't have to listen to You know what I mean? You don't have to search it out. You don't have to listen to it. You can turn it off anytime you want. No one's forcing you to do it. So it was very much like, I can just build this, and it can exist, and it will be its own entity. I mean, if whatever it does, it does. Um, and if I record something and it's crap, I can literally just delete it. <laughs> you don't have to. You don't have to post everything you do, right? Yeah, I've done that. Been there. Right. So uh, those are the things that sort of happened in line that, that allowed me to step forward. So I do owe you an incredible debt of gratitude, and I, I'm very appreciative and, um, you know, not pumping your tires, you know, but in a very genuine way. Like, it's it was powerful and it meaningful, and I'm glad I've done it. And, and now to be able to, for us to sit here and talk is is huge. Well, that's really kind, and I, I would like to deflect all of that, uh, but I guess, you know, I, I have to say thank you, and and I have to accept that, because at some level, that that is what, uh, what defines success for a podcast like this, uh, and, and I had no idea what this podcast was going to be like when I started it. Um, so I just wrote down a few things that for me were going to define success and uh, just being able to inspire others, inspire listeners, whether it was 10 or 10 million, right? Uh, with, with the stories, ideas, and experiences of, of great firefighters, like that was one of those measures of success. So, so thank you. I'm glad that it was successful in that way. And you know, let's be completely honest too, is that you and I, get the pleasure and the privilege of like locking someone in for three straight hours and like being front, literally like being front row center at a concert. Super selfish, right? Every time. It's so we, selfish. <laughs> we get to ask the questions we want to ask. We get to drive the conversation the way we want to drive it. Like we get so much out of it. Like the growth that's like, I've learned so much about people that I, that I've known for like my whole career. And I'm like, I had no idea that, about that. Yeah. And, sit down with my dad and, and 
you know what I mean? Have that conversation. Like we just don't have the time in our life to do that very often. Like it was, it was huge. So, but, and then for them to be value for other people off of that is just, Oh my God. Like you can't, again, how do you quantify it? Right. Uh, I think that's why it was important for me to try to outline success before I started. Mm -hmm. And um, I've been successful in some of those ways. And in some, I I don't feel like I'm, I'm going to say, um, and stutter like 17 times throughout this, or I probably already have. Those those haven't gotten any better as much as I hoped that they would. <laughs> uh, my editing has gotten a little better. Uh, I do think that I have uh, another thing that I want to hear from you as well, uh, whether you have uh, these metrics. Uh, I, I just wanted to be a better conversationalist and, and to be able to, to dig past small talk. Uh, more often with folks. And I do feel like it's equipped me to do that a little bit better. What about you? Have you seen like ancillary benefits in your life from, from doing the podcast? A hundred percent. I mean, we're all humans, so we all still have our moments where we're waiting to respond instead of, of listening to listen. That still happens. Absolutely. We're not perfect. We're not always switched on. I mean, that speaks to Von, um, Von Oppen's, uh, you know, you're not always fully involved, but at least you have that, that measure as something, as a goal that always stands there as something to, to strive towards. I listened back to the earlier podcast and I kind of want to re-edit them now. Like I, I feel like I had, again, I've, yeah, I've become a better editor and, but there's still value there. I definitely feel like I talk less. I feel like I had to maybe, or i I felt like I had to maybe have a conversation more depends on who you're talking to. Right. And what you're talking about, but that I had to interject my opinion a lot. And I definitely do that a lot less. And I just ask and I listen and then I reflect and then I try and get them to expand. And again, selfishly just wanting to know a bit deeper. Yeah. So that has filtered over into my life and then how can you be exposed to such great people and such great stories and such great information literally like it's like taking a conference or going to see a speaker but you're the only one in the audience and not grow from that it's it's impossible i think so especially for people people that are inquisitive like you and i are um and self-reflective and self-critical hopefully in a healthy way i think we're only ever going to grow from those experiences and i really appreciated how Yours was paced, right? You weren't on this, you know, race to release as many as possible and, you know, do one a week or two a week or, you know, have to have 10 sponsors. And I just really liked your approach. It's like, this is what this is. This is my project. I, I want to, I definitely want to enjoy it. I don't want to ever be editing. Whenever I reach that two hour point, I'm like, I'm done. And I just step away. And if it takes me, you know, days and days and days to edit a podcast. At least I enjoyed the process along the way. I was, and then I'm releasing something that I feel has like high quality for the listener. Right. Um, I probably over edit. I'm probably way too strict with that, but I don't know how to let that go right now. (laughs) Um, that's an interesting thing, right? Uh, I will over edit this podcast as well. Uh, but I also released a podcast that, uh, I recorded in a bar with background music and fire engines going by. Nobody cared. Nobody cared at all. Right. 
Yeah, it's, I appreciate the fact that you're going to edit it. Uh, like you said, we tend to have our own little mannerisms and our, our things that we say consistently. You really do do learn what each person's thing is that they say all the time. Yeah, I definitely over-edit it. But I feel like I'm trying to do not only the listener the best service, but also the best service for the person that I'm recording for. So to give just people a little bit of behind the the curtain, you know, I always tell the person this is recorded. It's not live. We can edit whatever you want. It's better if we just speak freely and I will cut anything you want. You get first listen. I will never release it until you green light it. I will cut anything you want without question. This is your episode and it's what you are comfortable with. You're allowed to run it by as many people as you want and take their feedback and then give it to me and I will make this what you want it to be. So I really want them to be, you know, it's a celebration of them and who they are in their career. And I want them to be super proud of it and happy and comfortable with it and not have any regrets about it at all. So I think the nerves go away very early on and we just settle in and we have great conversation. Everyone's got the, the same comment like, oh, I don't know what I have to offer. I don't know what I'm going to bring. Look at the great people you've had on. And and I could play the same game, but we all have something to offer. We've all got some story. So why not just have a conversation, man? It doesn't have to change the world. Just not everyone has to listen. They can turn it off if they don't want to listen to it. It's fine, right? They can think yours was the worst one that they've ever listened to of all the group. That's fine, too. <laughs> but a few people have got back to me and said there's been great benefit to the ones I've released for other people and the ones I've done and hopefully this one's too. That's all you can hope for, right? Yeah, absolutely. You never know what a person's going to say or who it's going to touch. Um, so for me, I just I just think that there are interesting people out there. They're generally doing interesting things, and, and that's who I want to talk to, whether they're super high profile or under the radar. And thank goodness that we're talking more than we ever have. And, and like you said, this ever-shrinking world, like, you and I are friends because of this, right? Like this service, we're part of the same family and we have a common hobby. Like it's, it's amazing. And that never would have occurred if we didn't dive into the pool. So, you know, communication is everything. I, I just sat down with another senior firefighter in another platoon, uh, just the other day. And there was some miscommunication going on. We've been friends for a long time. And it was, you know, just via text and all that kind of stuff, like the in, the intent and the inflection and all that got lost. So we sat down and we talked for an hour after shift and it was amazing. Like we literally need to do that more often. It's a hard thing to do. Very. Uh, it's a bit, you know, we just continue to make our worlds busier and busier. And that is my biggest downfall as a person is, uh, is uh, just doing too much. Um, and then as soon as I step back and create space in my life, I fill it up, right? Uh, but making space for those conversations is incredibly important. I'm really thankful for the people in my life who are very intentional about it. Yeah, same. That was a really nice little move out of here. So let's do a little bit of hosting. We're going to move out of uh, the job and we got a little bit personal there at the end. So I want to talk about your personal life just a little bit in that I've heard you mention pillars a couple of times. Like you intentionally have have uh, identified some things in your life which are, are kind of the support on which everything else rests. So can you talk to me about pillars a little bit? 
what stands out to me about that is, and one of the one of the pitfalls of the job is the strong identity that you are gifted immediately once you are once you put the uniform on, and that can be very dangerous for someone that doesn't really well, and who really knows himself at twenty three, right? Your brain isn't even fully developed until you're twenty five to 30 really that's what the research shows so how can we possibly know who we are we don't come in as clean slates we could have self-esteem issues we could have self-efficacy issues you haven't really solidified this strong identity so then you're just given it on the backs of other people where you go out to get fuel in the truck and people are thanking you for your service and you've been on for five minutes and if enough people tell you that you're amazing, <laughs> you start to, again, we talk about that ego going off like an airbag. You start to really align with that and you lean into it hard. And I've, I think you and Adam spoke about this. That was a real powerful conversation. It, so it can, it can vary. And because the job requires so much of you um, and you align with it personally as who you are, like if we weren't firefighters, and we're driving down the road and there's an accident, we would still act in the same way. Maybe not with the same skill set, but our intent is there. So I don't, there's many of us that don't feel like we have a job. We just get paid to be who we are. So you can very quickly, because of all these things, make this the only pillar in your life. And you're standing on it. And it's amazing. Like The job has given me more than it's ever hurt me. I have nothing but amazing things to say about it. It's, it, was, it was a true gift. It is a gift. It still is. But if that gets knocked out for any reason, right, due to mental health challenges because of the, of the job or that on top of what you already brought in emotionally, if it's a physical injury, if it's dynamics in the crew, like it, it cuts you deep and then you've got nothing else underneath you and you fall hard. So, and I think you're also living your life then like your locus of control, like you live your life outside of yourself where it's everything that's happening externally to you and you're just reacting all the time to those things like spinning plates and you don't have like a home base where you're, I've heard the, the phrase recently calling saying uh, being down in your shoes. It's like being down to earth, but being down in your shoes made it more personal to me. Like I'm, you know, I'm down in my own shoes. Like that was, that resonated a little stronger. That's interesting how you can reframe things and it just strikes you in a different way. Absolutely. So being down in your own shoes and you know who you are and what you are and why you are. Um, and then the fact that these other pillars matter. So being able to have your activities, whatever they are, being able to have your relationships, however many they are and how they, and how they work. Um, and you have your work um, and you have your belief system. So, and like you said, doing too many things, it's interesting when you look at all these different quote unquote pillars that they all require attention, your diet, your physical health, your mental health, they all require attention. And then your family requires attention and they're a pillar. So all you can do is move around each of those and keep attending to them as best you can with the time you have. And like spinning plates. I think mean, you, you can, you can say spin five really, really well. And you can start to, you know, 
be pretty dramatic about it, right? Because you're, you're in your wheelhouse and you could do this all day, you know, and it can even get a little bit boring, right? So can you spin 10? Sure you can, right? But then you're at your limit. But then as soon as you start trying to spin 15, well, you, you can't do that for very long and they're all going to come crashing down. So I think you got to choose the things that you're going to build underneath you that are going to hold you up attend them the best you can. You're not going to be perfect at it. But if one of them gets knocked out, which we're all one, one pillar away, right. Or one, one moment away from, from losing that. So again, this is the whole eggs, all your eggs in one basket. There's these cliches for a reason. If you're hinging on one thing, then you're setting yourself up. So I think you need to, whatever it is for you, decide what that foundation looks like and build it. And then, keep reassessing it and checking on it and seeing how it works. And if it's not working, then you need to adjust it. That's, I think it's pretty much that simple as hard as it is to do. That's something that you developed organically or was this a, was this a book? Was this a mentor? How did you come to kind of frame it in that way? Yeah, I think the one you speak about, you know, trying to give people something 20 years ahead of when you've had it, we're very much crisis managers in our job. So see a problem reacts. And then we also judge, is it really a crisis? Is it a not based on our spectrum? And we don't understand what project management is and training. This ties into training. Went from the floor crisis manager, going to training project manager, completely different world, long-term plays, planning, reverse engineering things, thinking about how things are going to play out looking at that fail, uh, failure points and trying to bolster it. That was one thing that, that taught me that is the versus the difference between crisis and, and project management and then treating myself more like a project and not waiting for the crisis to occur to address it. And I also learned that through having a counselor. So, you know, I had a pretty, pretty dark time after, you know, a pillar fell out from under me pretty early on in my career and, you know, just didn't even want to be on the plan anymore. Like that's where it came to. And luckily I took the fork in the road where I, I checked myself into the hospital and, and I spent a week there and, and came out and then built myself from the ground up after that. And then I got a counselor. So one piece of advice I'll offer to people that I think everybody should do. There's not a lot of things we should say that everybody should do this, but you should try and find a counselor when you're in a good space. Um, we all seem to do this with having a doctor and having a dentist and uh, maybe even a chiropractor. Like we have these people that we see when we're healthy because we all know we have to have them. We go in for regular maintenance. You know, we don't pull our own teeth. We go in for cleanings. We do preventative stuff. We brush our teeth every day. But for some reason, we all think we can handle the most complex organ and, you know, in existence. <laughs> And the human mind, I've, I've completely got that on my own. I can figure that out. So <laughs> you wait until you're in crisis. Now you're in crisis. You need someone immediately and there's no one there. And you start, start searching for that person. And every minute or hour that goes by that you can't find that, it creates frustration and the problem's getting bigger. And, and then you're maybe meeting somebody where they're not going to be the right fit for you. So then, then you think the system's broken, that's not going to help, and you feel even more hopeless and helpless. If you can take the time while you're healthy to find a counselor, 
that resonates with you and you get a baseline of where you're at. And I I guarantee any human being that goes and sits down and talks for a few sessions with someone is going to find out something that they've got going on that they don't realize they do. It doesn't have to be a mental illness. There's something there that you can address. So for me, it was that crisis moment. And I luckily, you know, all but for grace, uh, came upon uh, this counselor and, you know, for the past 16 years, I just saw him yesterday and I'll probably, I've seen him maybe, you know, two, three times a year now, just like a physical injury, you're in all a lot. And then as, as you get better, you're in less and less, and then you're just doing maintenance and then you're kind of going in and celebrating like, look how great I'm doing right now. Even though these things are going on, I'm managing. So that's a huge piece of advice. I think that we could save a lot of people, a lot of problems, um, and mitigate some stuff and make it easier for them if they would just take that and heed that and we'll all be a lot better off for it. So that, I think all those things together and these mentors around me, uh, the people in my life, a lot of the people that are on the podcast have been mentors to me in various, various ways. That's why they're there. Um, so listening to them, obviously you can hear what, what maybe I've picked up from them. And I continue to have mentors as I do more and more episodes that you discover. So I think all that together, that, and then, you know, obviously reading some books and, um, and then learning how to be a mentor for other people. So again, learning about what you are and not thinking about what you're not. So there's always someone that's coming up underneath you that you can offer something to, like, you don't have to know everything to offer something. So you've got something to offer somebody. You could teach somebody something, even if it's a small thing. You don't have to be perfect. Would you agree that that a, a person needs to be actively looking for those opportunities? Yeah, I don't think you need to. Yeah, I, I guess what you mean by actively looking is means you're actively paying attention because these opportunities arise all the time. Yeah. And you can be very short and flippant of it and if you're not careful and just sort of make a comment whether it's via text or by or in person and that thing that you think is just small talk and it's not really where even if you took the five minutes that it takes to really sit and think and then deliver something of um of substance in a genuine way it's you cannot measure the power of that um, I think that happens more consistently in my life now that I'm, I'm more, I'm paying more attention to when those opportunities arise and then I, I give them everything I have in the moment. And, and, and then I don't worry about if it's going to be, um, very significant for that person or not. All I can do is just offer what an answer in, in the way I am. And if it, it's great, it's not, if it, if it didn't help, it didn't help, but at least I gave it what I could. Right. So. And then there's a lot of, I'm sure you felt, we just talked about that, about teaching recruits and, and seeing the, the lights go on and, and seeing someone change from the inside, like because of that synergistic relationship between you and them, that there's, you don't have to be an instructor. You don't have to be a training officer. You don't have to teach anything. You can do this in, with people in your life all the time and to the level that you want to do. So you don't want to be a senior firefighter that's always drilling with recruits or rookies, then don't. But you know, if you've got one thing to offer every month, then go ahead and offer that. That's you're just you're adding to the the pool, at least in a positive way, right? Mm -hmm. That's a cool way to to 
put words to that. Uh, rather, maybe, you know, what I said was looking for opportunities. And, and I think the way you came back with that was, was pay attention. And I think that's probably mm-hmm. the better way to, to verbalize, you know, the way that a senior firefighter uh, can, can have that, uh, can be open to those moments. Very cool. Yeah. And it's building a foundation. So with rookies now, when I get them and we've had a, a good, strong rotation of them recently through our station is they can very quickly get to know where you're at. And as something as simple as saying, you know, I don't expect you to be perfect. I know you just got out of recruit class. You were exposed to a lot of things, but you haven't learned anything. I don't know anything about your background. We'll get to know that too. When I ask you questions, I'm not asking them to highlight what you don't know. And I'm not trying to make it me feel better because I know something that you don't like all these unsaid things that are assumed out there. I think if you can cut through that and then say, I'm asking you to find out exactly what you do know and find it. If I have something where I can fill the gap and don't hinge on everything I tell you, don't take what I say as the way. So you're going to talk to a lot of firefighters and hear a lot of things and you need to filter through that and be critical and then piece together all the things that work for you and then make who you are in this job. And here are these fundamentals. We're going to drill on these all the time. It's as much benefit for me as it is for you. We'll do it a thousand times if we have to, right? This is what it's about. It's about drilling and reps and not about you being perfect every time. And we have each other's backs and we'll do the best we can. I think that you see them sort of like sink down a bit, like relax and their shoulders drop and they're not so tense. Um, They realize that there's a high expectation of them on them. And one thing that I've set them at ease with too, is that there's more expectation on me than there is on them. There's way more expectation of someone that's been on 21, 22 years. If I screw up on a call royally of something I should have known, I've had 22 years to figure that out. They've been here for five minutes. There's way more pressure on me than there is on them. And I think once they realize that, that there's pressure on everybody in different ways for different reasons, then they're not alone. They're not the only one that, that, feels a little bit of nerves and a little bit of concern. I think if you let that go in your career, that's when you get dangerous. They feel a lot better about that. So that setting the ground rules really early on and they realize then they're in, they're locked in, right? And you know that the two of you can do quite a bit with that. Just that just that short conversation. That's really strong. I'm going to steal that with credit. Please do. And that's, that's, a, that's a great way to approach some new folks. And really, Erwin, do you ever find yourself saying something to a new guy and you're saying it in, in mixed company and, and maybe isn't even intended for the new firefighter so much it is, as it is for some of the other hearers in the room? Oh, that's all day long. That would be that's- another, another example of something like that to, to help everyone to come to a shared understanding that like we really do have a higher expectation uh, upon ourselves. And additionally, not only what we know, but if, if our rookie doesn't know something, that's our fault. That's on us. Yeah. And even giving the, the new people, the tact that they can use to get what they need. So in losing a rookie, that's going to go to another hall and they're concerned of like, well, I don't know how it's going to be there or how receptive they're going to be. What if they don't want to go out and do training with me and, or am I going to be seen as, you know, let's go do ladders, let's throw ladders as in like 
trying to make other people look bad because they know something. I'm, I'm like, listen, just say, hey, I was shown a couple things. I need a lot of practice with them. Do you mind helping me with this? Right. Always put it in. Can you come help me? And then through that, I don't think many people are going to turn them down. So in doing that, then that other person that's going to help them, they get, they get time to get better too. It's, it's always, uh, you always both get better. So there's a way that you can tactfully approach and ask questions no matter how long you've been on. Yeah. It's just about tact and approach, right? It's all about tact and approach and communication and, and calling out what the miscommunications might be before they even happen. Right. Just setting the stage as best you can. Mm -hmm. Cool. Okay. We've been rapping for a while and there's, there's a couple things I want to make sure that I cover uh, specific to you before we move on into some of the standard questions. We touched on this during a, a short Facebook conversation the other day. So I didn't realize about this, this about you. I know you're like a strong, healthy, fit dude, but I didn't realize that you had been a, a long time vegan. So how did you end up as a vegan? And then how have you maintained like really being you're, you're like really fit, dude. You're like, you're in good shape. So how, how have you been able to maintain that? Uh, what, what's that journey been like for you? Uh, yeah. Um, I started, you know, just getting into weights when I got into high school. So that's what around what, 15, 16, you know, and just bashing around with, you know, Guns N' Roses playing in the background and, you know, and then that, that gets into, uh, you know, really pushing heavy weights and wearing the, wearing the weight belt and squatting three plates. And it's all just about how much you can push, how much do you bench? Right. Um, and there's a whole host of reasons why that happened, but I do distinctly remember as a, as a teenager, like of all the mistakes I've made of all the missteps and wrong paths. Like I remember thinking when I was a teenager, if you start doing this now, when you're like for my future self, I'm like, I gotta look back and thank that guy. Like, when you're 40, it's going to be a lot easier to maintain it if you get the work done now. So thanks to, to the, that old me that did that. High five, 16-year-old Scott. That's right, right? Dude, you were pretty screwed up, but you, uh, you did one thing right. So kudos. That's awesome. Um, yeah, and, I, and then so I think from that, I always realized I was someone that could decide to stick to something or put, or change something in my diet. Like I literally decided to stop like eating butter on my bread. That was like, I remember distinctly that was the first thing. And then I'm like, Oh, I'm going to stop having bread with most meals. And so I just slowly picked away at these things, which I didn't even realize was a great way to approach changing habits. I never had that, that, that wording in my mind, but changing one thing at a time. And then, you know, I just started cooking a bit differently for myself once in a while, right? I would eat with the family, but then there's some things I wanted to eat for a certain reason. And, and being a self-experimenter and thinking, well, this seems like it might be good and then just try it for long enough and see what happens. So uh, I went vegetarian first. That followed on being in New Zealand, which is a massive meat-eating country. I don't know why it occurred there, but maybe just stepping outside from my country and my life and my routine. Maybe it was a surfing. I don't know. But something just gave me some perspective and thought, you know, here's some things that I might not necessarily agree with. Like, I have no, let's just put it, put it right out there. I have no problem with hunting zero. Like I think if you're a, a people that hunt want to be able to continue to hunt, like they want to be able to keep this sustainable. They care about the biodiversity of what they do, like hunting your food and, you know, killing it in its natural environment and then 
taking it home and, and getting sustenance from that, there is zero wrong with that. Like, let's, let's just say it the way it is. Do I have a problem with industrialized farming? 100%. And you could even say that with, with lettuce. Like anything we do with the masses that all 7 billion of us want to do something, how do you provide that? So I think even just, you know, you can't be perfect all the time. Again, you can't be fully involved all the time. So what little things can you do? Can you eat a little less meat? so that we can all, like the most people can eat meat. Can you eat local instead of trying to eat the mass produced stuff? So just that kind of mentality. And and then I'm very much a self-experimenter, like, well, I'll read about something or hear about something. And I'm like, well, I don't really know this ties into fire skills. I really can't judge this skill until I've learned it, lived it, perfected it, and then I applied it and see how it plays out. So I do that thing with my, with my life too. So I'm like, well, let's see if I can go vegetarian. So I literally just dropped red meat and I still ate chicken and I still ate fish. And then a year later or so, like I just, I dropped chicken and I'm still eating fish. Sushi was the hardest thing for me to let go. And I, if I had to go back instantly, I'd be straight to the sushi restaurant and I'd be just pounding back. That. That's that. I love that experience. I love everything about it. Um, not not yeah, that I so wish that I, on you, but if it happens, call me, we'll meet up we'll let, we'll do sushi together. I'm down. I'm down. We'll do it. We'll do a cheat day. Right. <laughs> so, uh, I dropped that and then, you know, and then I had to learn like how to adjust my diet properly. Like we just talked about fitting the right things that your body needs. Um, and then I realized actually something I didn't even want to happen. I realized that dairy messes with me. Like, I don't know if I grew into that. I grew up drinking like a bag of milk a day, like to the chagrin of my parents. Um, but it messes with me. So I had to drop dairy. So now I'm like leaving like, you know, milk and cheese and, um, and ice cream. Luckily there's a lot of substitutes for that now. And, and I felt a lot better because of that. And then I realized, well, I'm only one egg away from being vegan. Like literally that's the one thing that's left. So why not just do that and then play this out for a while and see how it goes. So I think because I eat a pretty balanced, diet overall like again don't expect yourself to be perfect like you got to have your a little bit of leniency here and there and enjoy things that you like to eat too um that that's been good like you can be vegetarian or be vegan and be unhealthy like potato chips are vegan right you can do pizza vegan like you could eat like garbage right so you really do have to eat it properly and eat you know and you can do any diet really right so and then for each person, it's different. And Jordan Peterson in particular, him and his daughter, I think I've, I've mentioned this before, uh, talking to people that they're on an, a, literally an all red meat diet. And, you know, the short uh, strokes of it is that they've drastically like, reduced or removed major physical illnesses that they were struggling with, like autoimmune deficiency stuff. So to say that vegan is the healthiest and the best way to eat, that's unfair. Um to say that you should eat an all beef diet, that's pretty unfair too. So you literally just have to try stuff and pay attention to yourself. And the same thing ties in with, uh, with fitness. Like where are you at? Who are you? What does your body need? How are you feeling? And then if it works for you, then lock in, right? For as long as you can. So that's been the process. And I'm, I recently, yes, yeah, the intermittent fasting has been huge benefits like we just talked about. So literally just adding and removing things along the years and like just like working out and then um, there's been benefits. So right now, yeah, like I said, I'm on a good run right now. So I'll just celebrate it while I can. Do you have to supplement meals with protein, anything like that to, to maintain muscle mass? 
Um, we get a lot more protein from eating a very balanced diet than we think, like from pulses and beans, um, from leafy greens. You do get, I mean, people say, well, look, look how many plates of broccoli you have to eat to get protein. Yeah, but I, that's not all I eat every day. So you add in all these different things. You're pulling protein from a lot of sources. Um, most people that eat a meat diet, just like vegans and vegetarians, can be extremely unhealthy, right? Um, just because you're eating meat doesn't mean you're healthier than the next person. Like, look across the Western culture now and see how the bulk of people are doing. No pun intended. Um, people that are eating meat uh, very often take supplements. They take a vitamin every day, right? So there is a, you know, I do two shakes a day uh, of like a high, like I do Vega 1, um, if they want to send me a container of stuff, then that's that'd be great. I do that. My my sort of like um, multivitamin plus a bit of protein. And then I also use their their uh, sport protein as like a protein shake each day. And people that eat meat, eat meat do protein shakes too. So it's not that out yeah. of the realm. No, yeah, I, I, I do. That yeah. do. But um, one, I would say one product that I've found or food that's a real food that's not highly processed called nutritional yeast, which is probably the most – disgusting name of a food super disgusting but. my wife so i have a kid who is uh, dairy sensitive and like she starts talking about this nutritional yeast and i'm like that sounds horrible but but go ahead yeah so you can i, I put it on basically the mo like I, I eat it once a day and i'll put it on like a, like a salad or a savory meal like that i'm eating right you put in soups chilies if you eat meat you could probably add it to your diet it's got like kind of like a a cheesy taste to it and um, okay, just next time for people that are complete, um, uh, haters instantly, if hearing something like that, pick it up in the store, look at the vitamin content of it for a quarter cup and prepare for your mind to be blown. Like 900%, 800%, 700% of your recommended daily value in like a quarter cup. So you literally shake a little bit on your food and you get so much value out of that. So I just feel like I'm finding these little you know, hacks, if you want to say, right, that I can keep adjusting to my diet um, and then play it out and see how it goes, right? Um, I do coconut cream in my coffee too. Like I do the black coffee in the morning, but I found this really high quality coconut cream that's um, just coconut and water. Like it doesn't have any junk in it. So I try not to eat a lot of stuff with junk in it. Um, that gets me the fat in my diet too. So I like to, you know, add fats into my diet, oils, coconut oils, um, and I know people aren't necessarily a fan of all those things, but it doesn't have to be that one thing. I'm not saying that that's the save, save all be all. Just find something. If you're throwing olive oil in things, and great. Like if real butter does it for you, then throw real butter in things. But do your research broadly. Read a lot of articles. Watch a lot of documentaries. Be critical. Play around with your own diet and find what is your sweet spot and then just, you know, work it. Yeah, that's cool. I wanted to make sure that I don't know that I gave you an opportunity to address that because like I'm I'm not going to go vegan unless there's some change to to the way that my my body reacts to to food but that doesn't mean that I have to immediately be be critical of uh someone who's made that decision and uh as someone who's like really interested in in health and wellness and fitness like uh that's the that's why it was really interesting mm -hmm. to me to, to hit it from that end just to see how like how you've been able to maintain that so that's cool and a quick tip just about around the hall like well how does that even work around the hall right so here's how you handle that don't ever mess with anyone else's program if you decide to make a food change in your world adapt to whatever is being done 
and there are ways to adapt. If you're doing spaghetti sauce, then just cook all the veggie sauce, spoon a few things out into another pot, and then throw all the meat in, right? If they're doing burgers, do your veggie burgers if you want. Like there's always ways to adapt and never shortchange shipping in on meals. If you're splitting the meals, split it evenly all the time. I've always been offered, hey, you're not eating this. Let's just, you don't have to pay as much. I'm like, no deal. We pay, I pay the same as everyone else. I'm not here to mess up anyone else's program or cost anybody else any more money. So just integrate, integrate, and you can still be who you are. And that will be actually celebrated and supported because of the way you approach it. I can't tell you how much I appreciate that. That's incredible. That needs to be at the beginning of the show to make sure that nobody misses it. Like that, that mindset uh, should perpetuate a lot of things. Uh, and the way that we approach our, our life at the firehouse or the hall. Yeah. Very cool. Let's talk about fitness, right? So while we're kind of on, on this topic, what do you do? How do you stay fit? Uh, you're in your early forties. Is that right? I'm 45 this okay. year, this 2020. Yeah. So it's no small feat to be in middle aged and continuing to be able to really get after it. So, uh, what do you do? Yeah, so that whole like pushing heavy weights and everything and then getting into the fire service, like I started actually getting involved in like the combat challenge and fire fit right at a recruit training. I was still in in, in uh, class and again, amazing kudos to like, you know, Peter Reed, who's, who's one of the um, um, episode guests early on. Um, he's been a, you know, a dear close friend since the moment I got on and he welcomed me in right away. He's like, yeah, you want to do this? Let's get in and do this. And everyone was super supportive and and so that was really pushing the limits and, uh, my body got beat up because of it. I, I was, I was an active kid, but never really a athletic kid. Right. And, um, was really just figuring things out along the way. So this was like high, high end training, the hardest you could ever go. Um, great, great experience. Learning how to suffer was amazing, especially for the job. And then you get on the job and you're doing work and you don't realize until you stop training that hard, how heavy things actually are, because you, you, don't, you don't know any different because you're in, in that kind of shape. Right. But a different kind of shape, like obviously for that specific sport. And then, you know, your strength is really high, but trying to maintain that level at a high level. Like I started to have a few yellow lights, like my, my forearm issue. I had like a low back sort of like upper glute thing. It's, um, it's really hard on the body it's abusive. Let's just put it, put it that way. Right. It's the extreme of what you can do. So a few yellow lights sort of had to get away from it was really thankful for the entire experience. It was amazing. Um, and then I learned just to, I don't want to run in the treadmill or, but I love that I discovered mountain biking through Zeus as well. So I've been mountain biking since I've been on, um, I mountain bike a lot through the summer. Uh, I snowboard in the winter I interject a few swim lap swims here and there and uh, got into indoor bouldering a little bit now, like once in a while I'll go and do that. That's fun and also a challenge. You don't have to be amazing at everything. It's just get in there and do it. And that'll really, that'll humble you. If you, if you think you're strong, go try and boulder a little bit. Um, and then these, these yellow lights that came on, sort of, I had to sort of adjust my, my workouts. So I got away from doing weights completely and just got into like doing TRX when that sort of came around and suspension training. I did the P90X thing and then I uh, got into the TRX. It was all suspension, all body weight. That was one of the things in training I did. Um, and then now I'll incorporate that, but I do mostly it's, well, I do all body weight ex exercises. It's all body weight for the last number of years. Um, I wanted to get really good at doing pull-ups. Like I wanted to get strong at 
and handstand push-ups. Like if you think body weight stuff's easy, I know you don't, but I'm saying people in general think it's easy. Well, we'll try and do it, right? Try and do as many pull-ups as you can or handstand push-ups and see how you do. Um, and I remember reading an article when I was a teen in men's health. And again, you got to with a grain of salt, right? But the one thing that stuck with me is that it did an art. It was an article on how to work out differently in your twenties, thirties, forties, fifties, and what you need to adapt. So I think I've, I came to that realization of, man, pull-ups are this way too, right? You want to get good at pull-ups? Well, you got to do a lot of pull-ups and you may only be able to do two. So do two, right? And do full, two full pull-ups and then, and then just stay consistent with it. And eventually you'll be able to do three and do four and do five. And then you're doing set to 10. So the body weight thing and that ability to, to be humble enough to say, you know, if you're going to do bench press and all I can bench is the bar, then bench the bloody bar. Like that's what you do. This is what your body. Sure. You want to do CrossFit. Sure. You want to be the most amazing athlete in the world. I get it. But you don't, don't compare yourself to those people. Where are you at? What's your process? What do you need to do? And then, and then work it. So I think I having that mentality of being realizing who I am and what my body needs and knowing when to rest and when to cycle things around. I think that's what's the long game and taking rest days when you need to like being a little bit flexible and not so hard on yourself. So, and know that you're not going to get complacent and quit. Right. So just, just that long play kind of like that mentality and then trying to get strong and, and, functionally fit and then just the last thing i'll mention is drilling at work so that was a perfect fit uh throwing 24s with just your bunker coat bunker coat on and then doing it in full gear and then with your pack on and then do it uh, while you're breathing a bottle down and then uh moving hose and flowing water uh, all these things can be done as a workout and then once in a while i'll throw in a um a circuit in the bay so you know, the prowler push, the, the tire flip, the the sledgehammer hits, I'll throw that in there too. So that tends to beat up my body pretty hard afterwards. So I don't do it often, but once in a while when I'm feeling Olympic, I'll, uh, I'll throw that in there. So that's kind of the approach. Like I kind of move it around a lot of it, uh, move it around a lot, but it seems to work. So I'm going to stick with it for a bit. You're still finding that you're strong enough on, on body weight right now? I'm the strongest. I think I'm the strongest I've ever been. Wow and the fittest and the most flexible. So to, for me, for, so for me, not the most flexible, strongest person, but for me, if I look at that from 16 to now and functionally on the job, like I'm can always improve. And I think that realization that I'm not a Goggins, I'm not a, I'm not a Jocko, like I'm not a Rogan, like these are great people to take pieces from and to inspire you, but you don't need to be that level. Like there is something that you can be, to be better. And I think right now, knock on wood, I'm on a good run. So I'll just try and keep working it as long as I can. That's good. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. Okay. So let's move into some standard refined by fire stuff. Awesome. I normally ask what you would make every firefighter in America read. We need to change that now to if you could have every firefighter in North America, read one thing, a book, an article, or a blog post, what would you choose? Yeah, I think I would, I would again, echo and amplify to start with the, the articles and books and people that your previous guests have mentioned, right? Um, you know, the book of Andy, for sure. That's like, that. that's what I mean. All those ones, you should go back and listen to all the episodes, write all those down and read them. It's, it's massive. Um, you can't, 
possibly understate that or over sorry you can't possibly overstate that um maybe we'll take a different tax here um and hit it from like a worldview spiritual perspective there's a book called uh 365 dow so you know you read a page a day right obviously for 365 and there's a little you know excerpt or poem and then there's a, an explanation of how that applies to the dow which um isn't like very much an organized religion it's more of a mindset and i think you know anything from birth to death to struggle to um, beauty, like there's a, there's something, there's a title and it's something that references that, um, on that day. So I think it's a really great book for people to sort of open their minds a little bit and see things in a different light. That would be one I would recommend. Um, and then a heavy, heavy hitter one that I'm literally picking away at a couple pages at a time because it's such a slog, but I think it's important is, uh, it's called the Gulag Archipelago. Mm-hmm. And that's one that Jordan Peterson recommends. It's it's touted as the greatest uh, piece of literature in the 21st century. So um, it's about uh, Soviet Russia in the in the 1920s, um, and uh, you know communism and the dangers of that fundamentalist far 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 left and how that can go. Um, there's a few volumes of it. It's very hard to read as like just because it's so in depth. Uh, but Alexander Solzhenitsyn wrote that. Um, and I think it's really eye-opening to see how an ideology, I think it's pretty pretty poignant for our times, how an ideology can go wrong. And we really know how the far right, we know what that looks like, but we don't know what the far left looks like. Here in the West and, anyway, right? Yeah, and if we if we don't, again, I wish I would have known this when I was a kid, if we don't, we really should learn our history. We really should. Um, so this is my attempt slowly, but surely to learn a little bit of history. And it's so in depth, I can't even really describe it properly because I'm processing it, but I would just, I'll just give the book name. People can look in, look into it and hopefully they get a little bit out of it. If I pull maybe, you know, a couple thoughts out of it, I'll be happy. Mm-hmm. That's, that sounds really interesting. Uh, I love, I love to read history. Uh, I, enjoy uh, a book called guns germs and steel as well jared diamond i've heard of that book i'm, I'm familiar with sort of the, you know what it what it covers i have not read it uh but it definitely seems like something that would be really interesting and and i've i've probably um uh, what's the word i'm looking for i've minimized it i i haven't explored that that interest it's something i read a lot as a as a young adult and then as a, as an, you know, as a firefighter and as a dad, it's been more, it's been more nonfiction, very much focused mm. on the things that I'm interested, the things I have to be good at right now. Uh, but it's important to make space, uh, for, for that, for that history. And also I think for fiction, it's a heavy hitter, but it's, it's a, it's worth a read. Awesome. We'll put them on the list, Scott. All right. Okay. Uh, you've been talking around this idea for most of the show, but let's see if we can distill it a little bit. What actionable advice would you give to the firefighter with an officer who refuses to train or only begrudgingly allows training? Yeah. So I would say that there are always things as far as tactics and skills go. There are so many things that you can do as an individual on the fire ground as a technique for you that will affect no one else on the fire ground. It will not affect the, the protocols or the SOGs or the flow of the call. 
when you're moving hose, especially when you're in heavy smoke, no one's going to know how the hell you're moving hose. It's just getting moved. So if you find a way that works well, then you need to drill it. And if it works for your body and it's functional, then why not? Same thing with searching, right? There are, there are more effective ways, but no one's going to know how you're searching. The search police aren't going to come and tell you that your knee should be here and your arm should be there. So you can, ignorance is your own choice. You have the entire fire service world at your fingertips. Watch videos, read articles, listen to podcasts, take things, try it out, try and perfect it, try and apply it and see if it works for you. <clears throat> as far as around the hall, you can do these things on your downtime if, when you get downtime. There are also things you can train around just in, even in the bay or in the parking lot. I mean, it's easy to say, well, you know, you're fighting parking lot fires, but you got to train and do it somewhere. Like if you, you can't always be in front of a door and be in an acquired structure. Like it's got to start somewhere. Learn what's in the box before you start to learn what's outside the box. So start small and work your way up. Um, you know, you can build a hose bundle and just do your stretches in the bay and you can do it midwinter right there you don't have to have some elaborate setup so you know i think yeah touching back i would just say it's, it's about how you ask and how you approach um just know if you feel alone in your crew or in your department that there's so many other people out there that align with you so you may get disenfranchised and disenchanted and think i thought everyone in the job was going to feel this certain way um but find your tribe right and really lock in with them and ask a lot of questions and there is plenty of opportunity and then i will also again echo and amplify the message of it's worth spending money of your own to take outside conferences right? that is worth your time it's people may think well the job should send me but if you wait for the job to bring training to you it's you're not going to get near as what you could if you do something off duty if this is who you are you know, this job is such a personal growth opportunity. It can make you a better person outside of the job. And then that's who you are when you leave. So why wouldn't you work on yourself, right? Why wouldn't you find these things that will expand your perspective? So I would say those are probably my approaches to that. I like that a lot. That's really fantastic. Rick George said something like, if you won't spend personal money, you don't take the job personally enough. Oh, I love that dude. Yeah, there's a mentor for us all. Absolutely. Such a good dude. Yeah. Scott, what advice would you give yourself on your first day of probation? First day of probation. I would probably have the talk with myself that I had with, with that I have with new recruits and rookies. I mean, I was an anxious person, right? I think I would try and ease some of that anxiety for myself. I would uh, treat myself the way I would, I would treat someone else. I would be good to myself and say, you know, you are good enough right now the way you are. Um, there's a lot of things you can get better at and we'll work at it. I think I would lower the unattainable expectations that I possibly set for myself on that, on that first day. Um, and realize that I can only go to the call that's going to happen at 7am or 10am that day that with what I have, and I can't magically transport myself into being 20 years on and performing in that way. So you can only be who you are in that moment and you're, you're there and you said you wanted to be there and then you were ready. I remember going down the road 
you know, to a few of my first calls and being, I can't believe they hired me. I'm here. Oh my God. Like I remember having this moment, <laughs> they actually hired me and they're going to, they're going to let me do this job. And yeah, distinctly remember that. I'm pretty jealous of that, of that feeling. I started as a volunteer and, and so got a little bit of those. I definitely remember that feeling, but I also knew that I wasn't going to be, I wasn't going to get the knife hand from the captain that said, you are going there to do that thing. Like they weren't going to do that with me. Right. So I understand like a, a lot of the, the pressure that, that must come along with that, the turmoil, but I wish I'd had that. I wish I'd had to deal with that on day one. And I wish I had had the volunteer experience too. Like I, I've never had that experience. So we kind of always want what we didn't have. Right? <laughs> Absolutely. But there's, but there's so many benefits to both. Yeah. I think we need to have a realistic perspective on ourselves and be good to ourselves and just do what we can with what we see and, and just not be super hypercritical. Like you got to find this balance of being critical of yourself in a healthy way. And that is so hard to do for us. And, but you can do it. The trouble is we succeed. We get, we get success out of being hypercritical of ourselves. We think that's the only way to do it, but there's a way to do it and get even more success by not being that way. So that we don't have the, the faith in ourselves to try it out. Mm -hmm. I try to think of it as, as words on paper, right? A, a lot of our self-talk and, or that hypercriticality that you're talking about, uh, there's a lot of emotion tied to it. There's also usually a lot of truth tied to it. So if you can just view it as words on paper, Steven needs to get better with his knowledge of the extrication tools on the rescue. Okay, I can accept that, right? Once we remove some of the emotion from, you know, whatever it was, the guy who yelled at you or the shame that you felt because you didn't know, have an answer to a question or something like that. And just know that, that whatever that thing is that you're finding, it's going to take you a lot of time to get to the, to that change. So you can't expect that I'm going to know this overnight and the job will crush you. If you think about all the things you actually have to know and the level you got to know it at and what's on, what's at stake. Oof, that's overwhelming. And you can't, you can't process it. So yeah, take the calls as they come and learn what you can from them and, and uh, know that you can't know things instantly. That's good advice. Let's wrap this up, Scott. I would like to know, if you'll play along with my game, I, I would I'd love to, to hear you uh, name your ideal fire service crew. So you can choose whether this is a, a pumper or an aerial or a squad, whatever, whatever rig okay. you want to ride. I'd love to know who you'd like to ride with. Okay. I thought a lot about this actually last night and this morning and the way to put it best. And it's, I really agree with a lot of the crews that have been mentioned um, I'm going to take a different tack with this and it might sound corny, but it's, I hope people have, from having listened to me this long know that it's going to come from a very genuine and authentic place. Um, I want to run, and you mentioned that we don't run many fires anymore, right? It's not as many as we, as we usually do. And they seem to happen, but they're not always touching on your crew when you're on. I want to run more calls, bigger calls like that with my crew and with the, with the, you know, eight to 10 of us that are there in, in any combination. Um, we have a very young crew and a lot of guys that, um, that haven't been into a lot of fires. So I feel I've been lucky to have 
a lot of crews that I become really, really close with. Like this is one of those crews. It's a real family. Um, it's a real healthy place. It's a real great place to be. Um, I just want us to run more calls and you never want bad things to happen to people ever. Like being quiet is a good thing, but if it's going to happen, I want us to roll up on it. And I just want the opportunity to see how we're going to be and make mistakes with them and then have some successes with them. And that just only ever increases that bond and that, that growth of that crew. So I'm going to, I know it sounds corny and it sounds like I'm trying not to, you know, not say I don't want to be, I'd rather prefer to be on a bit different crew, but that's, that's how I feel right now in this moment. That's a really cool answer. There's a lot to unpack there. We could talk about that for an hour. Uh, but I guess I just want to highlight a few things is if it sounds corny, that person hasn't experienced what an incredible experience it is to, to work with people you really trust and, and you really uh, just enjoy being around. So I can identify with that a little bit. Uh, and then additionally, that's just a, a really kind of cool picture into your mind of uh, uh, as a person who is sort of making sure, how do I want to put this? As a person who is living in a way that to express gratitude, like you're, you're obviously just sort of living in a state of, of, of being grateful for what you're given with your crew. And then additionally, there was something that really struck me about that answer. Uh, oh, it was just like uh, being present in the moment, right? Just understanding, like, I, I can definitely fall into a pattern of wishfulness and, and not being present in what's going on around me. So I think people can learn a lot from that answer. Well, Scott, uh, anything else you want to you want to touch on before we wrap? I would just steer people towards the podcast if they want to give it a listen to. Um, I've got a website for it, so it's multiplecalls.squarespace.com. Um, what to highlight on there is that I, I put together like a resource page. So it's full of hyperlinks of categories of um, information. Like so Facebook pages, books and DVDs, literature, other podcasts, um, articles. So it's all hyperlinked. You go on there and it's obviously not all there, but good luck to you trying to get through it all. <laughs> and there's going to be a rabbit hole for each of them. So I just think it's a good start. It's again, something that I wish I had had early on and, and just want to make that one-click access for people to to uh, delve into what this this job actually has to offer. How many people are out there, and how many people can help them? Um, there's a credit page on there too, so I'll give, always give credit where credits due. And your podcast is on there. You're on there. Like I, I just keep adding to it. And obviously, not all the names are on there. As I become, I feel like when I'm listening to your episodes, I'm trying to rapidly write down all the names that the people are mentioning, so I can, you know, add them to the list. It's, it's endless, right? And it should be endless. Um, but that's there. It's on SoundCloud. That's the host site, any podcast app. Um, there's the IG page and the Facebook page. They're both multiple call at multiple calls podcast. And then I would steer people towards the uh, Brampton Fire and Emergency Services team, peer support team website, Facebook page. Sorry. So I'll say that again. The Brampton Fire and Emergency Services peer support team Facebook page. So that's at B-F-E-S-P-S-T. So I admin that since it's started. Um, you're going to get an insight sort of into my mind in that world. And then obviously on the other, the multiple calls podcast, like I feel like I segment how I feel about that in that world. And then you get my personal page, which is very often nothing to do with fire. And that's sort of me in that world. So you can find me as who I am on my personal page and please add me and reach out. And 
let's talk. I just, I just love meeting new people and, and just, even if it's a quick conversation and that's the only time we ever interact, it'd be, it'd be something worthwhile. I'll cover it in the intro. I'll talk about your show and why I appreciate it so much. But uh, yeah, I just do want to encourage people to check that out. If you're listening to this and you're two and a half hours in, like you're a person who uh, you're our kind of, our kind of person. So if if, if you're listening to this, you made it this far, you're going to enjoy Scott's show uh, very much. There's a, there's a lot of value from his guests first and foremost, but also from Scott as well. Yeah, I appreciate everyone if they made it this far. That's that's uh, kudos to you. <laughs> we could talk for hours, man. We could do eight hours, no problem. Oh no, man, it's uh, there's never any shortage of content. That is that is for sure. Only time to create it. That's it. Okay, well, yeah. Scott, thanks for for coming on the show today. Yeah. Be well. Yeah. This is awesome. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. Thanks for listening to this month's episode of Refined by Fire. Hit us up on our Facebook page and let me know what you like. Let me know what you think we can do better. And let me know who you'd like to hear from in the future. Also, please be sure to check out Elkhart Brass. They're supporting us, so please support them. Elkhart Brass is a division of Safefleet. Safefleet owns a bunch of different brands like Elkhart Brass, like FRC, Foam Pro, and ROM. A bunch of companies that can help you out if you're specking an apparatus. They might have some stuff that you're interested in. LED lighting, flow meters, roll-up doors, etc. So if you're in the market specking a new apparatus, uh, make sure you check out what Safely can do.